Well, as I get started today, let me wave around one of my very favorite books that I've read this year. I've waved it around a few weeks ago, but now it's even more relevant. It's Larry Osborne's book, Thriving in Babylon. And so while I hope that the message today from the most important book in the whole world, the Bible, will help you know how to live, if you're looking for more, this is fantastic. This is a great book on how should Christians live in a culture that's not moving in the same direction as God's ways and God's word. Fantastic book. We've got copies in the Resource Center, so you might want to get one of these as well as continuing to read your Bible. On Sunday, July 5th, I briefly addressed... The Supreme Court ruling that legalized same-sex marriage in our country. But we focused the bulk of our time, I think most appropriately that day, by crying out to God in prayer and worship, reminding ourselves, it's good to remind yourselves in times like these, that God is absolutely sovereign over everything that's happening in the world, including our country right now. But I promised you I would come back to this after prayer and study, and I've done that, to address this in more detail, and so here we are today. Exactly 30 days ago, on June 26th, our Supreme Court handed down an an historic decision legalizing same-sex marriage in all 50 states. And so for the past 30 days now, if you're a human being and you got a brain, there have been people just all over the map, either over the moon, excited about this decision, or totally freaking out. And I haven't heard much in between. So what I would like to do for us today at Grace Fellowship, our church family, is I want to take the Supreme Court decision, set aside all the hype, let's take the Supreme Court decision and run it through the grid of God's Word to say, how should Christians now think and how should Christians now live in the kind of country we have and world we have And in case you don't stay with me through the whole message, in case I tick you off right away and you check out, let me say something that I hope would help a lot of you. Let me just stop and say it. That I hope would help a lot of you. The church of Jesus Christ and Christians should not panic in the face of this decision. And here's why. The Supreme Court of the United States can do a lot of things. They can make a lot of decisions. They do wield a lot of power and authority. But there is one thing the Supreme Court of the United States can never, ever do. They can never get Jesus Christ back into the tomb. He's still alive and reigning and ruling and coming back. And right now the Spirit of Christ is calling and drawing men and women from every tribe and tongue and language and nation unto himself and into his greater unshakable kingdom and they can't stop it. Doesn't that feel good? I feel better saying it. I hope you feel better hearing it said. But it's just good to just come back and remember All things can change and more is probably yet to change. But folks, the things that matter most cannot be undone. Jesus is alive. His spirit cannot be stopped by walls or laws. God will keep marching through history and America, accomplishing his purposes and fulfilling his decrees of building a church and drawing all kinds of people to himself. 
Our God wins. And he's a loving God. And he's a truthful God. And we're going to talk about that. So here's what I want you to think about. In the time that remains, I want to ask you two questions and help you wrestle with them that I hope you've already been wrestling with. If you're a Christian, I hope you've already been working your way through two very important questions. How should I think now? How should I think now as a believer in light of the Supreme Court ruling? And secondly, how should I live now as an ambassador for Jesus Christ when what we believe is in such sharp contradiction to what the culture is saying? Let's dig into the first question. How should Christians today think about the Supreme Court ruling on same-sex marriage? Well, turn with me in your Bibles. Now look at me a minute because I want you to get something else. Every time you're wondering what you should think about any hot issue, this is what you should be doing. Not looking up what Brad Bigney ever said, not going to the talking heads, not taking a vote, not sticking your finger in the wind. Turn to God's word, turn to God's word, turn to God's word. To get our bearings on what we should think, we should go to God's word. Now go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I do hope you have a Bible, because I want you to see it for yourself. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to look at verses 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And it says this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Here's the first thing I want you to take away from this passage. I want you to notice that God hasn't stopped calling homosexuality a sin. He hasn't stopped calling homosexuality a sin. There it is. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. And it's almost like God anticipates that there's going to be a day like this where other people would come swooping in and try to deceive you and make new decisions and show new research or new whatever. He says, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. Still a sin. Doesn't matter what the Supreme Court says. Doesn't matter what President Obama says. Doesn't matter what any counselor or therapist or other human being ever says. God calls it sin. And so when the President of the United States, who claims to be a Christian, can claim to be a Christian and at the same time claims to be promoting love and have the best interest of human beings in, in mind, as he legalizes homosexual marriage, our president is in absolute contradiction to the authority of God's word. I shudder and I shake my head when, pres- and when I hear President Obama say things like this, quote, Michelle and I are both practicing Christians. And obviously this position may be considered to put us at odds with the views of others. Mr. President, it doesn't just put you at odds with the views of others like Brad Bigney and Christians who still go by the Bible. It puts you at odds with God. 
That should matter. And he will stand before God and answer to God for how he's led this nation under so-called a banner of love and pointed people into what God says is destructive and hurtful and bondage and will not lead them to the kingdom of God. He goes on to say, you know, when we think about our faith, the thing at root that we think about is not only Christ sacrificing himself on our behalf, but it's also the golden rule. You know, treat others the way you would want to be treated. Folks, there's something sadder than having a president who is not a Christian. It's what we have. A president who claims to be a Christian while at the same time trampling across and completely disregarding what God's word says. But listen to me. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Don't hear me pointing the finger at President Obama and saying, he's the reason, he's the Antichrist. Please, you didn't hear that here. President Obama is not the reason our nation has moved and slid to such a low point of immorality and darkness. Listen to me. President Obama is a sign of our times, not the cause of our times. Because we the people elected him. And President Obama represents well. I'm sorry, he does. If you're still a Christian with your head in the sand, pull up. He represents well the views of most Americans, sadly, including many who claim to be Christians, who are more than happy to revise, compromise, or disregard God's word whenever it doesn't line up with our preferences, especially our sexual and personal preferences. That's the spirit of our day. So he represents our nation well. He is not the cause. He's a sign. And a reflection of really where we are in America. But I hope you'll notice something else. Because I picked this passage on purpose for this reason. I hope you'll notice in this passage that when God talks about sexual sins, he just lumps them all together and throws in some other garden variety sins that we're guilty of sometimes thinking, ah, not such a big deal, a little covetousness. A little stealing, whatever. And here's my point. I hope your eyes don't just zoom in on the word hom- homosexual. Why didn't your eyes zoom in on your sin? Because it's there. I think you could find yourself in those verses. If you need help one-on-one after the service, I'm available. <laughs> I can help you if you're struggling. I'm ju- I just don't see me there. Mm. I think you'll find yourself. I find myself in those verses. And so here's the point. I think it would be good if Christians would just take a deep breath and remember. Such were some of you. If you're here and you're a Christian and you love Jesus and you think differently and you have light instead of darkness and you have hope instead of despair and you have a sense of freedom that you can do more than just what your flesh wants to do. You have a power to do differently than that. God gave you that. You've been saved by grace there. But for the grace of God, you go and I go. Let's come down off our high horses and our moral high ground and recognize Here's the deal. Homosexuality is not the worst sin. In fact, you know what the worst sin should be? And you know who you should be aware of as the worst sinner that you know? Say it. Yeah. Because you wake up with you and it's your sin that is against the holy God and your Savior. That should be what you're most 
aware of. And here's what you need to recognize. At root, folks, you say, but, but, but that's such a, oh, I would never do that. I just, folks, it would really help, and we got to get a hold of this, if the church and Christians began to recognize you are more like them than different. When you speak in a way that's like, oh, you're in this special category. Oh, At root, even if your sin is not the sin of homosexuality, at root, all of our sins are the same. It's I want what I want, and no one, including God, is going to tell me how to run my life. And so I want you to notice also, in this passage, in verse 11, notice the verb tense in verse 11. Such, say it, say it louder. Past tense, such were some of you. And then notice the little conjunction but that gets jammed down into that verse three times. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. Here's the deal. The conjunction but is a hinge that says, you're going this way, now you're going that way. You were thinking this, now you think this. You were about to receive this, and now you're going to receive that. You were filthy in your sins. Never mind if, if, you, if you've never been guilty or tempted by homosexuality. Your sins would have landed you in a Christless, eternal hell. Your sins put Christ on the cross. Yours, you were filthy and God has washed you. You were right there in the crowd running hard away from God, wanting what you want. And he rescued you and has set you apart. That's what sanctified means. You had a list of sins that was against you that were nailed to the cross that you were going to answer for. And he wiped it clean and gave you the righteousness of Christ that's what it means to be justified but you were washed you were sanctified you were justified and it's not riding on your merits or you're a better person it's God thank God thank God thank God but let me clarify because it needs to be said while the sin of homosexuality is not that different than any other sin And it's not the worst sin. A practicing homosexual who claims to be a Christian. And we get this from time to time. And we're going to get more and more of it. Who claims to be a Christian and will not repent of practicing this sin. Of giving themselves over to the sin. This passage says, don't be deceived. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let me say something else that needs to be clarified. It is okay to say, you may disagree with me, but I'm preaching today and you're not. (laughs) It is okay to say, and I think the church has shot itself in the foot by not being willing to say this. It is okay to say, I have had these desires always. I haven't tried to be this way. I haven't turned away from what I felt to do this. This has seemed so natural to me from the very beginning. I've always felt more comfortable with girls or I've always felt more comfortable with same sex. And it is, it is okay to say that, folks, because we're all born sinners. We're all born bent. Your sin may be towards anger or covetousness or envy or jealousy or, or insecurity. Whatever it is, that may be theirs. Allow it. Acknowledge it. Now, don't hear me saying it's a gene and so therefore I can't stop. No, it's sin. But your sin could be, I've always been inclined this way. So someone could say, 
I've always struggled with this. I've always felt this. But I see from Scripture that God calls it a sin. And so I'm fighting these desires because my identity is in Jesus Christ and not any particular sexual orientation. Think about it. If we allow for that, and Scripture doesn't, someone could say, I've never wanted to be committed to one woman. I love having sex multiple times with different women as I move through life. Yeah? That's because you're a sinner. So to say, this is natural. I just don't naturally have a commitment to one woman for life. I like bedding down lots. Does that mean you were born that way and it's a gene and we should say, oh, okay, wow. No, it means you're a sinner just like me. So allow for it, but you have to fight it and say, my identity is in Jesus Christ. My sinful desires in no way totally define me. I belong to someone greater. My identity is in Jesus who died for me, rose again, and his spirit lives in me and is helping me say no to these desires and fight it just like every other Christian has to fight their sin. Welcome them. Welcome them. But let's get after the second question. So, Not just what should we think, but now how should we live? How should we live in light of this ruling? Well, I don't think you can find any better place in all the Bible to get some guidance in these days than in Romans chapter 12 and 13, where Paul has just gotten done unpacking and elaborating on this great doctrine of salvation for 11 chapters. And then in chapter 12, he turns and says, now, in light of this, live like this. And I hope you realize, Christians, it's not just what you believe that matters. What you believe should impact how you behave dramatically. And we need both. Truth lived out. Truth lived out. Truth lived out. Truth with flesh on it. So turn with me to Romans chapter 12 and 13. I'm going to ask you to stand while I read it in honor of God's word. And to make a clear distinction. There's what Brad Bigney says and there's what God's word says. And while we're standing, this is straight up undiluted God's word with no commentary. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. For I say, through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, But all the members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Patient in tribulation. Continuing steadfastly in prayer. 
Distributing to the needs of the saints. Given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, Do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil With good. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good. And you'll have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore you must be subject. And not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Customs to whom customs. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed the night is far spent the day is at hand therefore cast off the works of darkness let us put on the armor of light let us walk properly in the day not in revelry and drunkenness not in licentiousness and lewdness not in strife and envy but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, oh my goodness. If we had the old time country church and you didn't care and nursery and all that, I could preach for three hours about all that. Probably find myself talking by myself towards the end. So nobody else would be here. There's no way we can unpack all the goodness that's there. So here's all I want to do in the time we have left. I want to show you some highlights from these two chapters that I do believe can guide us in times like these. And I'll let you dig into it further on your own. First highlight, number one. 
First thing I want you to see is God's called us to be odd for God and to swim upstream in a culture that's being swept away into, into decadence and darkness. That's what you see spelled out in verses 1 and 2. So get this. No matter how old you are, regardless of gender, if you don't like being the odd man out or odd woman out, you're not going to do well as a Christian in the days ahead. The days of Christianity being popular, if there ever was one, are over. And the days of Christianity being tolerated are now over. We're living in a day when you should expect to be mocked, marginalized, and maybe even attacked for your beliefs. And that's why God tells us in verse 2, look at verse 2 again of Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world. Your temptation, folks, is going to be, if I speak up, if I say what I really think, if I don't just get in line, if I don't, I'm going to be made fun of. I'll be singled out. I'll be called a hater. Yes. He's like, don't be conformed to this world. Don't let it squeeze you into its mold. You say, how am I going to keep that from happening? I'm going to say something I say all the time. You've got to read the Bible. Because he tells you, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. How's that happen? You read God's word. If you're just watching television, you're watching sitcoms, you're watching mysteries, you're watching the Discovery Channel, you're just listening to the talking heads of our culture, you will not think like God thinks. And you will start to look and act an awful lot like the world while you got a Christian fish logo on your attire. You got to keep reading this. And if you do... It's not just what you think and say you believe. Because notice it says, don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may know what is that good and perfect will of God. We need truth lived out. You start living it out. You start living out what you say you believe. You'll look radical. You'll look odd for God. It will look countercultural. But folks, for 2,000 years the church has been countercultural. We've just lived in a nation that started with Judeo-Christian foundations. And so it's just been so much easier here to be a Christian. Those days are over. But don't run screaming and crying and scared to death, folks. The church of Jesus Christ has thrived most during the seasons when it was most in contradiction to the culture. Not in alignment with it. The best days of America have not been the 50s and all that with Beaver Cleaver and everyone stayed married anyway and they taught their kids not to cuss and they taught their kids not to steal and they taught their kids not to sleep around. Those were not the best days. You couldn't tell Christian from just wholesome non-Christian. Those days are over, hallelujah. And you are going to stand out. Say yay. Yay. Say it enough and maybe you'll start believing it. Yay. But folks, I mean it. When, when communism swallowed up China and they slammed the door to missionaries and the gospel and tossed everybody out, burned down churches and nailed the doors shut, what happened? The church of Jesus Christ exploded. These could be some of the best days that America has ever seen. But it'll take Christians who are not conformed to this world. Don't be conformed to this world. We've always been countercultural. This is not a new thing. The, the first century Christians that were, that were believing Jesus Christ and his resurrection in this message were trying to live this out in a culture that was immoral 
and, and immorality was affirmed. This is not a new thing, folks. Check it out. Read your history. Ephesus, Rome, Philippi, Corinth. These were Christians living in neighborhoods and cities where homosexuality, adultery, fornication, prostitution, pedophilia, bestiality were all alive and well and accepted as the norm. And along come these Christians saying, no, one man with one woman for life. No, sexual purity. It was Christians, first century Christians, that were going out and rescuing babies that were being tossed out like garbage and left on the doorstep by their Roman neighbors. And they would take them in at night and rescue these babies because they believed human beings were created in the image of God. It was Christians that were counter-cultural and looked odd for God. So we get to just join a host of God's people who've been doing this for centuries. And now it's our turn in America. These could be some great days. There's going to be a great harvest, folks. I believe there's going to be a harvest of souls. But only if we learn how to live out Romans chapter 12. But we cannot cave in. We cannot conform. And listen, here's why. Get this. Lost people don't need a church that's just a regurgitation of a deluded, hijacked version of what the culture is already saying but with a christian fish slapped on the side of it yes lost people need the unadulterated loving word of god to set them free that's why jesus if you read matthew mark and luke and john as he walked around 80 times he said i tell you the truth i know it's not what you would have thought i know it sounds radical upside down i know it's not what the culture is saying i tell you the truth i tell you the truth i tell you the truth that's why he said in john 8 32 you'll know the truth and the truth shall what set you free folks we cannot dilute or compromise and conform it will just lead people into greater bondage we cannot and must not do that but don't hear me saying they're going to thank you oh thank you for speaking truth that is so refreshing Mm. they won't add you to their christmas list but get this you just might be the one person in their life who is courageous enough And loving enough to speak the truth. And sometimes they come back and thank you. Don't count on it. I've been a pastor 30 years and I've got three letters like that. Three. I read them all the time. I mean, people have hated me, hated me, hated me, hated me. You said, Brad, you're easy to hate. I know. But for things I told them that they didn't want to hear, every now and then someone will write me a letter and say... Please forgive me for my anger. I hated you, but you were one of just a handful of people that were speaking the truth to me. Thank you. You might be one of the few people in someone's life who isn't just being swept along with our culture, who not is a hater enough, but is a lover enough that you would risk reputation, risk their anger, risk being rejected, risk being singled out to say, I need to tell you what God's word says because it's what's best for you and it will set you free and you'll find joy and peace. Number two highlight I want you to see because notice now I'm talking to you. How about that? And here's why. Because the second thing I want you to see is God has gifted every single one of you Christians to impact the people around you. You say, oh no, yes. It's not just pastors and church leaders that are supposed to be swimming upstream. 
You are. He's given you spiritual gifts. You don't have to be ordained. You don't have to have a piece of paper. You don't have to have seminary training. If you have Jesus, he's given you at least one spiritual gift, perhaps multiple. And those spiritual gifts are supposed to be impacting your family, your neighbors, your coworkers, the people you play sports with, the people you rub shoulders with in the neighborhood and the grocery store and Jiffy Lube and the hospital and doctor's appointments. Question is, are they? Are you listening to the Spirit? Are you stepping out in faith? Are you taking any risks to use your spiritual gift to impact people around you? And notice, you can see this spelled out in verses 3 to 8. But in particular, verses 6 to 9 talks about some of the gifts. And I want you to notice how many of the gifts have to do with words. We keep coming to that. You cannot just live for Jesus and say, all my life is a sermon. I hope it is. Here's the deal. Your, the sermon of your life should never contradict the sermon of your mouth. But the sermon of your life should never be the end of it. You got that? I need to be speaking words and my life better also be not perfect but a testimony. But you got to speak words. It says prophecy. That's words. Exhortation. That's words. Teaching. That's words. And then he throws in there money. Say ow. And he throws in money and mercy. He says, those who give with liberality, those who show mercy with cheerfulness. Folks, I believe God wants to remind Christians in a huge way today, I designed you to open your mouth, to let go of your money, and to allow your heart to break for lost sinners like mine does. I'm convinced, folks, if we had more, more Christians waking up, ready to speak, ready to give to meet a need, and ready... To show compassion and mercy for lost sinners instead of screaming at them or running from them. Oh, what we would see happening in our culture. Speak. Give. Broken heart. Broken heart. Broken heart. Knowing that could easily be me. But for the grace of God, that would be me. That's what you see in this passage. And while I'm talking about words, let me clarify what kind of words should be coming out of our mouth. What's the most important thing we could be talking about? This may shock you. The most important thing we could be talking about today is not homosexuality. It's Jesus and the gospel. Jesus and the gospel. Don't let every conversation get hijacked and consumed with the latest cultural skirmish. And here's why. There's more to come, folks. This is just the beginning as our culture moves wide away from God. There's going to be more issues. I don't want to be an issues Christian. Keep the main thing, the main thing. It's Jesus and the gospel. It's Jesus and the gospel. Keep bringing it back to Jesus and the gospel. You say, but nobody wants to talk about that. Wrong. Just in the past seven days, let me tell you what I'm talking about. God opened an opportunity that I took three times in seven days to talk to someone about the gospel and Jesus and nobody brought up homosexuality. Don't hear me saying no one will. My mind was racing and thinking, when they're going to say it, when they're going to say it, when they're going to say it. But what do you think about? They never did. Seated on a plane next to a man from here to Minneapolis going to teach and kind of scary looking, tattoos. Doesn't look like he wants to talk at all. But I thought, we'll give it a shot. I mean, you start by just being friendly, folks. If you're wondering, what does Brad do? Watch this. Hey. Got it? Practice that. If you just stop pretending that a real person wasn't sitting next to you. Hey, let's not pretend that you're not there and I'm not here. Hey. 
Is Minneapolis your final destination? Are you from there? Just, just be friendly. Ask questions. If you'd been on that flight, you would have heard this man's voice 70% of the time of the two hours we talked. And 30% Brad, you said, no way. Yep, Brad can do that. He does. I just kept asking questions, asking questions. You know what? His wife had died in the last year. He's about five years older than me. Married 17 years, died of cancer. He was heartbroken. He wanted to know about heaven and hell, eternal life. How do I know the Bible's the truth? Jesus, sin. He didn't want to debate homosexuality. He was hurting. He was thinking about eternity. Flight back from Salt Lake City. I'm thinking, I'm tired, Lord. I taught for four days. It's early flight. No one wants to hear it. We're not going to go there, Lord. And this lady sits down. I'm friendly. Hey. And in like two minutes, she says, blah, 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 because I'm LDS. And I thought, I'm tired. Like, oh, is that a disability? Is that, is she on drugs? LSD, LDL. Oh, she's a Mormon. Latter-day Saints. I'm like, okay, Lord, we can't pretend that this. Here we go. Two hours. I asked her questions. 70% her voice, 30% mine. And I'm just drawing her out, asking, and she knew her stuff. She's a teacher that teaches high school students the doctrine of Mormonism in release time from public schools. And, but the more I let her talk and listened, and she said, oh, Jesus, my Lord and Savior. Mormons do not teach works, we teach grace. But then I asked my favorite question, if you were to die, and God said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? People can't help themselves. They say what they really think. I've been baptized. I'm like, like. Come on now. Not just any Mormon, right? She's like, yeah, yeah. Mine doesn't count. Right. She didn't want to say it, but gotcha. So I'm baptized in the Mormon church. I'm striving to do what he tells us to do. Okay, so am I, but I don't think for the reasons you are. And then she says, because I think I'm worthy. Oh, that sounds a lot like works. So I shared the gospel and what a joy it is for me to know that my sins have not just been forgiven, but the righteousness of Christ and all his obedience where he kept the law has been applied to my account. And that every day I rest that my standing before God is because of Christ. And I do strive to please him, but out of gratitude and love, not I hope I've done enough gospel, Jesus. And then I come back from my flight and I ran into this guy who... I met a year ago. We just happened to talk, and he said he's not a Christian, da, 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 but he thinks he's okay. Good. And so I thought, and I started praying, and I've had in my pocket this booklet, How Good is Good Enough by Andy Stanley. It's fantastic. I use it all the time. And I was praying, and there he was. I'm like, I've been hoping I'd see you. I got something I wanted to check on you. I said, I've been wondering, since you said you're pretty good, how good is good enough? How would you know? If goodness is the standard, how good is good enough? I got my little booklet. Of course I'm scared. I hope you know that I'm scared. I get scared too. But you got to push past that. I'm holding it out. He takes it. There was this moment that I thought was like nine years where we're standing there. It was probably three seconds, but it's like, ah, he's going to say, and I kid you not, the words were piled up behind my teeth. I was about to say, but you don't have to read it if you don't want to. No problem. And he says, I'm going to read this. I'll let you know what I think. Gospel, Jesus. Gospel, Jesus. God, I got to ask you, in the last 30 days since the Supreme Court ruling, how much have you talked about Jesus compared to how much you've talked about gay marriage? How often have you shared the gospel compared to how often you've shared your two cents worth about homosexuality? 
Make the main thing the main thing. The main thing should be Jesus and what should be coming out of our mouth most is the good news of the gospel. And here's the thing. You may say, but no one's going to want to hear it. Wrong. And here's why. Because we live in a fallen, broken world. It doesn't matter what they rule about homosexuality. Here's what I know. People are going to keep getting cancer. People are going to keep losing their jobs. People are going to keep losing their kids to drugs and heroin. People are going to keep waking up in miserable marriages because they're both sinners and very selfish. People are going to keep making so much money in America that they get everything they thought would make them happy, but it doesn't, and they're depressed, and they're going to be looking for better answers. Everybody is not going to wake up saying, i got to find me a Christian debate about homosexuality. They're going to say, i got to find a Christian to find out why they have this hope, why they have this joy, why they have this peace, why they treat their wife the way they do, why they handle their money this way, why they're so different. I want to know about that. But see, here's the thing, folks. They will only turn to us after they've been broken. With all the world says, go, 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 go. This will set you free. This will be so good. What has just happened on June 26th is just going to cause more people to be severely broken and disillusioned. Which means there's more opportunities to share the gospel. But here's the deal. They will only turn back to us in their brokenness and time of need if we love them well while they hated us and spoke ill against us. But will we be the church? Will we be the church? I want us to be. Who when this happens, they'll know. I know she loves me. I know he loves me. I'm going back. And we can love them and lead them to Jesus. There's two kind of churches in the days ahead that I believe will not be helping lost sinners. And will not see a harvest. But I think there's going to be a harvest. And I want us to be at the center of that. Churches, churches who compromise God's word. And cease saying everything God says about sexuality and everything else in the world. And just conform and become silent. They'll make no impact. But there's another group that I want you to be aware of. Churches who continue to scream the truth of God's word. In outrage at everyone who disagrees and become hateful. No one lines up for that. And they won't come back to you. Silent. And hateful will not be reaching lost sinners for Christ in the days ahead. Speaking the truth, say it, in love. Keeping who at the center? Jesus Christ. Great opportunities. There'll be great opportunities. Third thing I want you to highlight and notice from this passage. God's called us not to just hunker down and survive. But to go on the offensive with truth and love. In verses 9 through 21, God gives us our marching orders and he sets the tone. Get this, look at me everybody. Truth and tone both matter. It matters how you fight. It's not like this is such a vicious fight, the gloves are off, we're just going to speak truth. We're going to speak truth, we're going to scream truth. Uh, No, not on my watch. I'm calling you to scripture Truth and tone. And the tone that you see through this passage, oh my goodness. Half dozen times he comes back to one of the fruits of the Spirit. What did you see over and over? Say it. Love, 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 love. And guess what? If you read it carefully, you'll see that love is supposed to start right here at church. 
Church was meant to be a greenhouse where you learn to love sinners who are brothers and sisters in Christ. Is it hard? Be honest. Yeah. But if you can't love brothers and sisters in Christ, what are the chances you're going to love your enemy while she or he screams at you? Right here. That's why he says, be kindly affectionate to one another in brotherly love. Verse 9 and 10. He sticks the landing in verse 21 when he says, overcome Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And you say, how would I do that, Brad? We jump back to verse 20 and he tells you. He answers the question. If if your enemy hungers, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them a drink. Here's the deal. Overcoming evil with good is not that flashy. It's little deeds done in love to meet practical needs. For people who actually are hating you, just keep loving and looking for ways to meet a practical need. They're hungry? Feed them. Thirsty? Give them a drink. Overcome evil with good. Just simple. Continue to be kind. Continue to be friendly. Overcome. Don't get sucked up in the evil. and Don't become a screaming, angry hater. Overcome evil with good. And learn to love right here at church. Listen. You can scream the truth all you want at sinners, but you'll just be a clanging gong and a crashing cymbal. Read 1 Corinthians 13. You want the truth of God's word to pierce their heart? Wrap it around with love. Wrap it around with love. Wrap it around with love. Will we be one of those churches and will you be one of those Christians that broken, shattered sinners will turn to when they say, oh my goodness, this is not working out. This is horrible. Will they come to you? I think they'll only come to you if you've been that Christian who speaks the truth. How? In love. See, what he's telling us is, yeah, go to battle. But it's an upside down radical battle plan. When you read verses 9 to 21, it doesn't take long before you realize, oh my goodness, that is not what my flesh would have thought as far as how I should respond to people who are attacking me, belittling me, mocking me. Woo! And then the tone. The Christian accent is the way I would tell you to you. Our accent when we speak should be love. Think about it even in our, in our nation. It's big enough that there's different areas that sound different, right? And we say, you sound like you're from the deep south. We know why. Or you sound like you're from Boston. You sound like from New Jersey. You sound like you're from Wisconsin. We've got these different sounds. People ought to look at you completely apart from your words and say... You sound like a Christian because they hear so much love in your voice. Even as you say what they don't want to hear, even as you hold to the truth, love should be the accent that people hear in our voices as we speak the truth. And the last two highlights I'm going to have to let you just look at on your own. In chapter 13, 1 through 7, basically God tells us you're supposed to submit to your governing authorities no matter how wicked they are. No matter how wicked they are, that's a whole sermon on its own. I'll let you dig into that further. But I'll take a final minute to thump that last one. God's calling us to wake up to the times and start living all out or all in, whatever phrase you want, for Jesus. He basically says, awake, wake up, stop building bigger houses, buying better cars, Getting so consumed with sports, 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 sports. I don't have time to minister to anybody. I don't have time. I don't have any money. Figure that out. Get out of debt. Downsize. 
Give money away. Give your time away. Awake, Christians. The day is far spent. Christ is returning. But here's the deal. If you want to live for what matters most, first, he says, deal with your own sin. It's very interesting. Verses 11 to 14 of chapter 13 is where he says, wake up. The day is far spent. And then where does he go next? He actually says, put off the works of darkness. Put on light. Let us, verse 13, walk properly. You want to get serious about making an impact? Get serious about repenting of your own sin. You won't make much of an impact while you're caught up in pornography. You won't make much of an impact while you're sleeping with someone who's not your spouse. You won't make much of an impact while you're sleeping around singles and committing fornication. Repent. Just holding to truth and screaming at a people is not going to get it done. But oh my goodness, a holy church that is repenting of its own sin and filled with love could set this world on fire. This is the day to say, I've got to get serious about repenting of my own sins so that I can reach out and make a difference and love people and sacrifice. Because you can't put on, verse 14 says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you put him on? By putting off your own filthy sin you keep clinging to. Get serious about repenting of your sin and put on Jesus Christ. Christians, take heart. He's given us his spirit. He's given us the gospel. Don't keep wishing you were living in a different time of history. He's raised us up for such a time as this. The fields are white unto harvest. There are going to be great days to share the great news of the gospel with broken people. It's time to seek his kingdom first. It's time to speak the gospel with love. It's time to fear God, but do not be afraid of your mission field. Oh God, thank you for your word and your spirit and giving us everything we need for a day like this that we didn't have to say, oh my goodness, I wish there was some place in the Bible that addressed a time like this. Just like always, we open our Bibles and look at that. You give us exactly what we need for the days we're living in. Oh God, may we be the people who speak the truth in love, who keep Jesus at the center, that people would know they can come to us no matter how much they've hated us or spoken ill of us. They can come to us and we will love them and lead them to Jesus. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.